0: Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, um, our greatest longing is that we might experience more of your committed, covenantal, unparalleled love for us, and that we might, by the power of your Spirit, be able to reflect some of it as we are transformed by it, that we might be able to love others as you have loved us in some way with your help. Uh, Please pray that uh, we would be helped now by your spirit as we open up a couple verses from this passage, uh, as you challenge us that you would please work in our hearts to change us, to transform us, to be more like the Lord Jesus in his love. Amen. Amen. So someone uh, yesterday was brave and courageous enough to ask me to preach at their wedding. That was my sister-in-law. That was a fascinating experience. Fascinating experience. I'll tell you a little bit about it. Um, One of the things that I have noticed is that from time to time, if you have had a deep, meaningful friendship, or if you are in a love relationship, dating, or if you have a spouse, um, you're bound to come across one of those tests where it's a kind of a how-much-do-you-know-the-other-person test. Do you know the ones I'm talking about? It's uh, it's not just, you know, what's their favorite color. It's kind of, uh, what was our first date like? For some of you who, you know, it was a long time ago, perhaps uh, perhaps a few decades ago, I don't know, you know, um, or perhaps for some of you, your first date was a nightmare, I don't know. But one of some of the questions I sent my sister-in-law and um, her now husband included, what was the best date, okay, who is the most frugal, who is the most patient, who is the safer driver, Who initiated the first kiss? Fascinatingly, the answer to that last question was my sister-in-law. She initiated the first kiss. Poor guy, he was terrified, wasn't he? If you're watching, Jack, you know. But you were terrified. We know this. Okay? And already there, we come to realize... He didn't initiate it. He didn't get all of the questions right. She didn't get all the questions right about guessing what the other person would say. And yet they were getting married yesterday, proclaiming their love for a hundred and some people to hear, making lifelong vows. Surely that means that love, true and meaningful love, can't be based only on how much you know each other. Am I right? Because I've been married 10 years, and I cannot tell you that I know what my wife would do in lots of given circumstances, (laughs) and I often uh, am on the receiving end of lacking that knowledge. How much knowledge would be necessary for a person to make a decision that investing in someone is what you ought to do, whether it's a friendship or a love relationship? I don't know. That'd be hard to say. The world out there couldn't answer that question confidently. And therefore, love can't be based on only how much you know each other. Love can't be based only on how much perhaps you're attracted to each other. Because obviously, as you looked yesterday at the bride and the groom, you know, the poor guy is always, he just never gets any compliments throughout the the day, isn't it? It's it's perhaps at best it's uh, about his character, which is a really good thing, isn't it? But nobody just walks up to the groom and says, wow, you look so handsome. His mum does, obviously. But not the rest of us who are attending the wedding. And even though he looked at his bride and he said, you are absolutely stunning. You could see in his face, he was just struggling not to cry. Very emotional guy. Fantastic guy. Jack, my now brother-in-law, proudly say. But he knows that her body parts will sag. That she will acquire some crow's feet as she ages. That some wrinkles will appear. So it can't be only based on how fit you think the other person is. Because that won't last. Love can't also be based only on how you feel any given day. And if you're a fan of Michael Tinker, one of his children's songs is called The Hormone Song. And he he says it like this. Do your feelings ever go up and down? Does your smile ever turn to a frown? Do the tears ever fall from your eyes? And you just don't know why. I mean, we are like this, okay? Even us blokes who are rock solid, you know, of emotional containment. But even then, we're not as reliable as to say, I can command myself to feel this emotion ad infinitum. We can't do that, can we? And therefore, whatever true meaningful love that we long for cannot simply mean an emotion is going to follow and because we feel intuitively because aha god has placed something in our hearts we feel intuitively that love must be more than this we read again 1 john chapter 4 verses 10 to 12 where we're going to zoom in this is love Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. So let's think about this because we don't have time to go through the entire letter of one john although i will have a coffee with any of you anytime and just read it with you and talk about it because i just i love this letter that much we know that john had been through a lot persecuted for his trust in the lord jesus losing friends and family that he would never see again exiled to a greek island you know away from everything he knew and yet, in all of this, he knew the real deep love of God and wrote the inspired scripture for us to know an inkling of it as the, go- the Holy Spirit speaks to us. He tells us what love is and what it isn't. So let's walk through that verse then. Because, number one, in verse 10, we begin This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Have you been to a lot of weddings, would you say? I don't think I've been invited to that many. But then I am a foreigner, and all of my family, extended families abroad, you know. So it's a bit difficult. I get invited, but I can't go because it costs 1,500 pounds for one of us to go. So we're not going. <laughs> but I have come to appreciate, and other people have agreed with me. There is a way that a bride looks at a groom, that a groom looks at the bride, even as, they walk, even as the bride walks down the aisle, and I just enjoyed looking at Jack as he looked at Candice. Have you ever done that? Just looked at the groom. His face of utter amazement. Perhaps it is the case that you've been around two friends who were just as thick as thieves, inseparably intimate, sharing anything and everything with each other in their friendship. And if you have you know that both of those examples are a small-scale picture of the infinitely greater love of God. And yet, yesterday, what I saw at that wedding wasn't the looking at each other of people who simply lust after each other. who just think of physical beauty. A- as I have witnessed intimate friendships, I haven't simply met deep intimate friendships that believe I need somebody to complete me. I need a friend. Otherwise, I will simply not be enough in the world. Because that's a a burden too heavy for anyone to bear, isn't it? But John tells us, this is love. It's a proactive love. If you were to take notes, it's a proactive love. It's a love that initiates. I told you that my sister-in-law kissed first or initiated the kiss first. But a better question that fits our passage and our concept of love here, according to the character of God, is who loved first? God initiates. And that direction of love matters for us, doesn't it? If, if you can think of whether it's a, a, a spouse or someone that you're dating or a, a, a really deep, intimate friendship where there, there, there's no barriers, there's no secrets, who is it that initiated that first, that led to today, I wonder? In our Bible passage, we learn that God loves first. You know why? Because there's no other way it could have been. There's no other way it could have been. The Bible says our hearts and minds are so broken that we had no thought of him before he thought of us. We had no acknowledgement of his being our creator the king of all, the ruler—we just didn't care about him. We lived in different lives. I remember a quote that um, Achilles uh, says: He he's on horseback, um, going towards battle, um, in the Greek myth, and a, a little boy says to him, I, "I can't believe, I can't believe you're gonna, you're gonna go and face this person." And he says, that's why no one will ever remember you, because you can't think past this. This is a love that is remembered because it's so upsetting for us to admit that it's necessary. It's so upsetting for us to admit that God loves first because there's no other way it could have been. Because when you read the rest of the scriptures, you read something like Romans 5.8, and it's while we were still sinners, he died for us. Like we had no idea, not a care at all for the heart of God. Or you think about Ephesians chapter 2. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We lived gratifying the desires of our flesh. We were deserving of wrath. Verse 4. But because of his great love. God who is rich in mercy made us alive. This is a love that's been like this throughout the scriptures. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, you hear the Lord saying this, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous, more powerful than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Deuteronomy 7, 8, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. We're going to apply that to our relationships. But if, if we are not, I think if we don't think about what it means that God proactively loved us, that he initiated something which we couldn't have, just being a Christian doesn't make any sense, does it? It's a stupid idea, unless this is true. If this is a love that wants the good of the other person, and God didn't wait for us to earn the right for him to love us, How astounded are you? How exhilarated by that thought are you? If this could be true of how God teaches you to love, can you imagine what that would do to your marriage, to your friendships, to try and love proactively like this before the other person has to earn the right to be loved by you? That's earth-shattering. Any two people, who love each other proactively like this, are going to be utterly safeguarded against saying, I'll love Andy when when he apologizes. I'll love him when he earns the right. I'll love my wife when she finally cooks a good meal, whatever it is. You're safeguarded against saying foolish things like this because you know God's love cannot be earned because our hearts are too broken to earn it. And he teaches his children to love like this. So Walton Church, if we understand more of this love of God for us, we're going to be able to love each other through arguments. Yes. Even if you believe the other person is wrong and they just can't come back from it. We were enabled by the Holy Spirit of God to love them. We're going to be able to own up to our own mess ups and our downright sin. We're going to be able to initiate acts of kindness, regardless of what's going on before. Because it's just highly unlikely, isn't it, that any group of 100 people would exist in this room and in this building, doing several activities together, that we would do that and not hate each other at some point for any reason. That's unlikely, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, I could ask you right now to put your hands up if I ever did something, to but don't, don't do that. Because I know it would be true. And it would be true of so many other people here. Thanks, Hannah, for that encouragement. (laughs) And so there could be so many questions I could ask you that would unveil my sinful heart before you. But the only way that we could be together as a family of God is if we believe God has loved us first and we would like to love like this. So this is a proactive love, but it's also a very well-defined love. In verse 8, God is love, which is very different, isn't it, to love is God? God is love, very different to love is God, isn't it? I think when we say love is God, we legitimize, we say it's okay, anything that we call love is love. Oh, that's so difficult, isn't it? Because there are so many wicked desires that we have in our hearts that we could call love, but love is not God love. And that means that when we say God is love, everything about God's character and about what He says and about what He does (coughs) is the benchmark. It defines for us what love is. I wonder, what must it be like to love somebody? Look at the character of God. Look at the character of Jesus, who is God. And so if it is loving, you should find that God is like that. If something is um, worthwhile uh, doing that is loving, well, you'll find God doing it. If you want to get a bit theological, then you can think about the uh, communicable attributes of God, the attributes of God's character uh, that we have to a smaller degree. Like, for example, God has um, all knowledge, but we have some knowledge. And every time you think of a character of God, none of those qualities are negated. By his love. So when he expresses his knowledge, it's for our good. It's loving. When he expresses his wrath, he judges justly and lovingly because that's the very best thing for us. It wouldn't do anybody any good for God to turn a blind eye to sin. When he is faithful, it isn't just because he wants to prove us wrong. I will persevere in doing you good. No, he truly desires our good and he cannot not be loving. So this love is proactive, it's a well-defined love, God is love, not love is God, and it's a humbling love. As I walk the streets of Chesterfield, it is easy for me to find examples of the following. As I walk, I see different couples. And more often than not, I see something that makes me think, how on earth, Did he win her? You know what I mean? Some ugly, sort of uh, unimpressive man, you know. And then there is a beautiful woman next to him, knowing how to carry herself, uh, holding an intelligent conversation, and you just think, oh, but the mercy of God upon this man's life. And if he knows that, that he hit the jackpot, It's very humbling, isn't it? I mean, if you're a man here this evening, do you believe you hit the jackpot? And does that humble you? Because if you don't nod right now, you're going to find something else coming your way later this evening. (laughs) Just to tell you something that illustrates this. If you say that you've never seen a case of this, you have when you've met me and you've met my wife. So, Megan comes from a family that excelled academically, and I quit university to come to the UK. Megan is organized, competent, reliable. It's taken a few years for me to improve on each of those very good skills. Megan has beautiful blue eyes, flowing hair, she's gorgeous. I am, as you see, unable to be improved. I am humbled by the mercy of God in knowing that I'm loved by her. She could have done better. I couldn't have done better. Times that by infinity, we are humbled by the love of a God who, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existed self existently in need of nothing at all. The Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Spirit, the Spirit loved the Son, the Spirit loved the Father. Intertrinitarian trinitarian love, not a need for us, didn't have to love us, didn't have to create us, wasn't obligated to redeem us. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he didn't have to. And that same humility is the humility that we would need to first come to him and say, I have failed you greatly, more than I can bear to admit almost so i admit to you that i am a sinner and that enables me and you to be able to admit to one another that we are sinners so children that gives you license to go to your parents and say mother the bible says you can't be right all the time because you're a sinner (laughs) you see she may be right 95 percent of the time it's just hard to see the five percent in my wife sometimes is wrong but we continue to be humbled by that love if we know it when we think about how he loved and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins think back now to a relationship of friendship that has had a little bit of friction okay maybe a significant amount of friction maybe some things were said that Would have been best left unsaid, but they can't be taken back. Whether that was a friendship or something you said to a spouse, okay? What have you had to do to patch that up? Okay? Just take a moment. The person next to you. What have you done, what have you ever had to do to make up after a fight? Okay? Just, Just 10, 20 seconds. Go for it. Tell the person next to you. Well then, um, uh, I wonder the kinds of things that you said. Um, for me, a bouquet is in order. Not just any. I may have told you this before in a different different sermon. Uh, it must have some measure of eucalyptus, because that's abundant in South Africa. It must have a king protea, if it is to be found. They can be expensive to get because that is one of the flowers endemic to South Africa. Uh, perhaps some chocolates, something like that. Um, a bottle of rosé, preferably Zinfandel. However, none of that would work if it wasn't after some cooling off period, some apologies, et cetera, et cetera. That can patch up a lot of things. Let me tell you something, though. We want to apply that to all our relationships, and we forget. And our friends and family who don't know the Lord Jesus forget. There is a relationship which is so broken, we cannot atone for it, can't pay something back to fix it, can't do anything to patch it up. The damage that we've done to our relationship with God has meant... that the Father had to send His Son, perfect, faultless, blameless, holy, to become a man and be an atoning sacrifice on our behalf for the sins which we have committed. And the difficult thing that we take for granted is that whether it's Easter time or some other time that we're looking at the cross of Jesus, We ought to be able to look at the cross of Jesus and realize that if you hadn't mucked up, that if you hadn't been so evil, and I hadn't been so evil, the King of glory would have never had to die. And therefore we feel the sorrow and the sadness of being face to face with the need for an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's why somebody said, and I think it was C.S. Lewis, but I can't quite remember, that Christianity is at one and the same time the most depressing and the most joyful religion of all. The most depressing because we've uh, learned that we've so rebelled against God and His love that we can't fix ourselves. We've, uh, the damage is so great. We can't just patch it up. We're hopeless. I don't want to admit that. How many of you love admitting that you are wrong if you do probably it's a fake apology okay probably you are the british person that is comfortable apologizing to a lamppost because you've stubbed your toe against it and you just sort of say things it's like oh oh sorry easy to apologize like that isn't it oh sorry sometimes i make my children apologize to each other sorry It is easy to say it like that. How many of our friends and family are offended by being told that they are sinners, that their their sins need atoning, that there is no remedy that they can find outside of Jesus? How many of them are upset at that? Why is it that we can understand that there is a cost for human relationships to be healed? Like if we fight someone, we know we can't just waltz in and pretend nothing happened. Why don't we apply that to our relationship with God and come to him? I'm talking here about the people that I meet that say, well, if there is a God and he exists, I mean, he loves me. And I'm like, is that what you do after you've like really hurt your wife? You know, emotionally, do you just go, well, yeah, but he loves me. I'm like, dude, you got a problem if that is you. And yet Christianity is the most joyful because... The punishment for our rebellion falls on the Jesus, who if we believe He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the price fully paid. So that ahead of us, there's only the incredible love of God to be experienced and known now and forever. That's why John in chapter one, verse four says, I write to you so that your joy, our joy may be complete. Because that's joyful. That's why he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, that he is faithful and just to forgive, and that brings us joy, the joy of being loved unconditionally. That's why in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, the joy of knowing that the advocate, Jesus, the righteous one, will not fail to say, it's paid, it's done, you're forgiven, you better believe it. My Holy Spirit will enable you to believe it. And on that note, let's look at the last challenge from that passage in verses 10 to 12. would be the biggest challenge for us as a church. Read it again with me. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. And if anybody here cares about football, it's not me. I find it fascinating that if there was a match yesterday, and the results are being told somewhere, there's some radio waves that would be just in this room, <laughs> that if we have a radio, if we have a phone with that capability, it would decode these waves that are invisible to us and make them Visible. If you have an app called, um, I think it's called the uh, Architecture Radio, and it just sort of you point the camera and it shows all the radio waves projected on a screen. i like, wow, that's kind of cool, you know. A radio is something that makes the invisible visible. Much like uh, those magic eye things, you know those magic eye things that you'd have to look at and stare. Um, I can never see what they show. I think there's something wrong with my brain. But then my wife, who's super intelligent and has a first honors degree, can't see it either. So that's interesting. But when I click the button on the website and it just changes the picture, I go, oh, there it's there. You know, I click again and then I can't see it. But making the invisible visible is precisely the job of Walton Church as part of the invisible church of God. Let me explain. God is invisible. No one has ever seen him, John says. A little like the radio waves all around us, but he is here all the same. John tells us the invisible God is made visible when we love one another in the way that he has transformed us to love. His love is made complete in us. It's uh, taken root in our hearts and changed us. And once we've heard, experienced this love, There's only now two choices for us, John says. Number one, we can love proactively, with humility, as God loves, looking at him sacrificially. Or we can do verse 20. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Ouch. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, some of you here have siblings. And you're like, yes, I do often hate myself, feel like I hate my siblings. And the challenge here, I can't claim to love the invisible God or even to make him visible without loving others. These people that some of the time will get on my nerves, step on my toes, upset me whom I will upset, and yet... These same people, very same people sitting next to you and around you, ugly or beautiful, short or tall, heavy or light. These same people that I ought to be able to look at and say, here is a person for whom Jesus Christ died. And whom he loves. And whom I ought to love. So anytime now, that I feel the lack of motivation to love you, that you feel the lack of motivation to love me. Let's remind ourselves that it's okay to say, you ought. That's what John says. Is duty bad? Is obligation bad? For this generation, it might seem like it, but, but not for John. He says we also ought. And that's why every time we have communion, we meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus, who didn't have to love us, but chose to. And we go, okay, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. A proactive love, a humbling love, a well-defined love. God is love that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. And therefore, I'm not simply depressed and down in the dumps, but I'm joyful because of his forgiveness. And since he loved me like this, I will be able to love others so let's pray now that that's exactly what god would help us to do as a church in our friendships in our relationships with one another and that we would feel able by the holy spirit of god to say i'm so sorry i haven't loved you this way let's pray lord jesus thank you that you are you are the one who has loved in a way that we would have never known otherwise Thank you that there was no beauty or goodness in us that prompted you to love us. That there is no evil in us that could stop you from loving us. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to see an inkling of this love. And that for anybody here who knows you, we're going to rest assured we will experience this committed love throughout all eternity. Please help us to live and to love on the basis of this assurance. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray and thank you.